Good morning, Truth Seminary. It, it is such a joy to be here. I am so honored. I truly am so honored to be in your presence. Um, Todd Still, thank you so much for the invitation. Ryan Barnett, oh my gosh, um, what a joy to be here. Rusty, thank you for the welcome. And to the amazing Billy Abraham, I'm honored to be speaking in your presence. <laughs> but I have to say, that the fact that I am addressing Baylor University on the day, okay, you can let your inner Pentecostal out, right? That the Baylor Bears became the NCAA National World Champions. Woo! And I'm here for that day. Who knew? I'm, I'm, I, I just really hope that at some point during the tour, I get to see the actual Bears. That's, that, that, that is my, my life ambition. Okay. So, our topic for this morning is hope. And in that beautiful passage that Catherine read for us, and read for us so beautifully, and by the way, it's hard to get through that many verses, we hear the hope. We hear the hope of a people who desperately need hope. And so my title is Hope Stronger Than Fear. Now, it's a pretty good title, if I may say so myself. But I have to fess up that I didn't actually think it up myself. I sort of stole it. And I stole it from an epic tale that most of you in this room know very well. You were raised on it. It is the saga of a certain Katniss Everdeen, an unlikely leader if there ever was one, a young woman who due to her singularly loyal heart winds up the target of an evil empire, an evil that is so far larger than she is, a capricious evil that considers Katniss and all that she holds dear completely expendable. And there's a famous scene in which the villain of the story, you know him, President Cornelius Snow, yeah? Uh, resplendent in the wealth of his position and completely insulated from the horrors of his own realm, asks his gamekeeper, Seneca Crane, yeah, you know the scene, he asks Crane, do you know what the purpose of the Hunger Games is? Yeah, you remember the scene. And Crane looks a little confused and he says, well, uh, like, to win, yeah. He says, but why do we have a winner? Why do we have a winner? And Crane, like most of his audience, is completely confused. And so Snow says, wouldn't it be an awful lot quicker to just round up 24 young people and execute them in front of the nation? Wouldn't that be more effective? It certainly would be quicker. And Crane still doesn't get it. So with Thinly-veiled disdain, Snow leans in. You can feel his breath at this point in time. And he says, hope. And Crane has no idea what he's talking about. He says, hope? Hope, Snow says. It's the only thing stronger than fear. Snow's point? If we're going to control 12 brutally oppressed districts and keep them from revolution, we're going to need something stronger than fear. And this is where my title comes in. This is where I stole my title. Hope is stronger than fear. 
And of course, my mind also leaps to Prince of Egypt. You did watch it this week, didn't you? It's required in my family during Holy Week. Yeah? And can you hear the amazing uh, theme song of this particular uh, animated extravaganza? Though hope is frail, it's hard to kill. I love that line. And then, back to Snow, prophetically, he leans back and says, all right, Crane, a little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. So he commands his gamekeeper, contain it. Hmm. Well, like most of you, I utterly despised President Snow throughout book and film. I find his callous, calculating cruelty terrifying. And all I wanted to do throughout the entire book and the entire film is I wanted to pack up Katniss and Prim and Gail and Peeta and everybody else in the film that I had come attached to, and I wanted to get them as far away from snow as I possibly could. But even with that reality, I was also deeply struck by the fact that snow is right, that hope actually is stronger than fear. Now, fear and hope, they can both motivate us to action. Yeah? Fear can keep you up till 2 a.m. to get ready for that big exam. Yeah? Um, fear can uh, force you to do things that you didn't think you could do or maybe shouldn't have done. Yeah? Um, fear can actually keep you <laughs> in seminary because you're afraid to go home and tell the world that you didn't want to stay. But hope, hope is actually the more powerful of the two. Again, fear can push you to do things that you didn't think you could do, maybe that you shouldn't have done, but it's hope that will make you stand your ground when the world is crumbling around you and it seems like the world is absolutely against you. Fear can't do that. Hope is what keeps the watchman on the wall. Hope is what gets you back on your feet when an opponent who's twice your size has knocked you to the ground and completely knocked the wind out of you. Hope is what makes you say yes when everyone else around you is saying no. Hope is what gives you the strength to say no when everyone around you is saying yes. So that is my title and that is my point. Hope is stronger than fear. So let me tell you a story is back in the spring semester of 2015, and I was teaching the book of Isaiah at Wheaton College. 230 of some of the finest undergraduates out there. Um, really fabulous kids. Okay, maybe not fabulous all the time, but that would be another story. Okay, so in light of Wheaton's liberal arts identity, I challenged my students to do their final exegesis papers in a transdisciplinary fashion. In other words, I made the Bible and theology kids work with the economics and education kids, yeah, to complete their exegetical project for the year so that the project would be informed by two different disciplines. Don't you hate it when profs do stuff like that to you? Don't you love group projects? Yeah, yeah. Well, they felt the same way. Okay, so I can tell you that some really fabulous projects came out of the assignment. And it turned out, in that particular class, I had three psych majors. Yeah, you know, those future therapists and psychiatrists who are going to help the rest of us deal with all of our stuff so that we can be perfect people and marry the perfect spouse and have perfect children and perfect churches. Those people. Okay, so at this point, they were only 19, 20 years old. But to my great surprise, my psych majors all wanted to work on the same topic. Hmm. 
Now keep in mind that Isaiah is a pretty big book, like 66 chapters, there's a lot of material in there, and all three of them came to me with essentially the same proposal. Why? Because each of them had found the same thing in Isaiah's oracles. And what did they find? You can guess. They found hope. Hope spoken in passionate and compelling terms by my man Isaiah to a community who, as I had detailed all semester, were in that awful place where their own sin had finally caught up with them and had left them broken and battered and bruised and down for the count. And even more interesting, each one of my psych majors wanted to work on an oracle that had to do with highway passages. Hmm. And if you have studied the book of Isaiah, you know there are a fair amount of highway passages. In fact, Catherine just read us a highway passage. There's Isaiah 11, 15, and 16, where our prophet is offering a word of messianic hope to the exiles of the northern kingdom. And he's saying, and Yahweh will make a highway to cross on foot. Yes, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that is left of my people, as there was for Israel when they came out out of the land of Egypt, or Isaiah 35, which actually is the first great climax of the book, where images of a desert landscape are transformed by spring rains and wildflowers. You're from Texas, you know what they're talking about. And here he offers a glimpse of the eschaton, and the prophet declares, a highway shall be there. Where? Well, he's talking about the new earth, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. And no traveler, not even fools, will get lost on this highway. But the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed shall walk there. And they will walk there with everlasting joy. And sadness and sighing will flee away. Or perhaps the most famous of these passages, Isaiah chapter 40, and I am hoping that you have a Bible with you. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that she has served her term. This is the exile. That her penalty is paid. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness. You know what's coming next. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be brought low. All the uneven ground will be leveled so that the people of God can come home. So as I listened to my psych students that semester, I realized that my emerging adults, my 20-year-olds, they knew something I didn't. That happens every once in a while. What did they know that I didn't know? Well, first of all, I thought I knew something about hope. Yeah? I knew that hope is the birthright of the Christian, that in Paul's world, word, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proving character and proving character hope. Thank you. I knew that our hope is a hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while I was still a jerk, oh sorry, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. I thought I knew something about hope. But what I didn't know about hope is that it is apparently a psychological category. Did you know this? that hope can be quantified. You can be tested for your hope quotient. And apparently, 
in 2015, it was one of the hottest topics in the business of psychological training at the time. I, I didn't know this, and I didn't have any idea that the world of psychological practitioners has identified mechanisms for creating hope, and that hope can be learned. Hmm. Now, of course, if I'd listened to Paul more carefully, I might have known some of these things, but I didn't. And nor did I know that the word of God through Isaiah can be identified as one of those mechanisms, a mechanism for creating hope where there was no hope before. And that's why my psych majors were so mesmerized by the highway passages in Isaiah. So let me start by telling you a little bit about hope as a psychological category. And for all of you um, aspiring therapists out there, forgive me for me butchering your discipline, but here I go. All right, so um, hope as a psychological category. This generation's hope guru is a guy named C.R. Snyder. And he wrote a book called Hope Theory, Rainbows in the Mind. Now, I'm not wild about the subtitle, but you get the point. Okay, Snyder defines hope as the perceived capability to imagine and pursue pathways to goals that get a person out of where they are into a place they want to be. Let me say that again. The perceived capability to imagine and pursue Pathways to goals that get a person out of where they are into the place they want to be. And hope is the ability to motivate yourself. Hope is the ability to motivate yourself to use those pathways to get to the place you want to be. So Snyder would tell us that hope involves agency. That's the motivation to move forward. And pathways, that's the avenue by which we move forward. And this, of course, is why my psych majors were so interested in the highways in the oracles of Isaiah. But listen again and very closely to Snyder's definition. The perceived capability to imagine and pursue pathways to goals that get a person out of where they are to the place they want to be. Do you hear it? In Snyder's definition, Hope starts with me, yeah? According to Snyder, hope requires me to imagine a path forward. It requires me to find a way out of where I am and point myself to where I want to go. And it requires me to get moving on that path, which most of the time a healthy adult can do. Okay, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Let's get on with this thing, yeah. But here's the rub. What about when we're not dealing with a healthy adult? What about when we're instead dealing with an exhausted or an injured adult who has come to the end of their proverbial road? What, are, what, what when we're dealing with someone whose identity has collapsed around the injuries of their lives, who due to either the injuries of the past or the agonies of the present find themselves just ready to throw in the towel those who are imprisoned by anxiety, and those of you who struggle with anxiety know exactly what I mean, crushed by despair. How about those so silenced by injustice that they simply don't have it in them to get up one more time? How does that person find the agency and the pathway to move forward? 
Well, according to E.M. Tong, who is another hope guru, under those conditions, Snyder's model simply doesn't work. And indeed, Tong says, quote, when personal influence has lost all relevance. I want to pause over that. Because if you are over the age of 30 in this room, you know this moment when personal influence has lost all relevance. Tong says those extremely traumatic situations in which people are aware that what is so deeply desired is beyond reach when neither their talents nor their resources can get them there. What do we do with those people? Those people who need hope the most. That's the rub now, isn't it? Okay, I'm no hope guru. But what I want to tell you this morning is that the conditions that Tong is describing are exactly the circumstances of Isaiah's audience. And these were the same circumstances that drew, again, my psych students to the prophet's words about Yahweh's highway in the wilderness, a path forward, in other words, hope defined. So we're in Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. Catherine has already read this passage for us beautifully. Israel has been a nation since Moses came down off Mount Sinai. You guys know this. You're in seminary, yeah? Okay, he's come down with the two tablets of the covenant in his hands. The day that God said, will you? And Israel said, we do. The promise was that God would give this refugee populace, the land of Israel, as a land grant. And if Israel would keep God's covenant, they would keep the land. He would give them houses they had not built, vineyards they had not planted, olive groves they had not tended, and as it takes an olive yard 20 years to begin to bear fruit, that is a very big deal. From the perspective of a homeless, landless people whose most recent memories were generations of slavery, Yahweh was offering them paradise. And may I say most importantly that Yahweh was bestowing upon them perhaps that thing that is most important to all of us. He's offering them a new name, a new identity. From this point forward, you're not who you were. You're who I'm making you to be. All right. But he also promised, and you know this too, that if they broke this covenant, they would be driven from the land just like the Canaanites before them and all of the economic uh, prosperity and military stability that had been offered to them, that they had been blessed with, was dependent on them maintaining that covenant relationship with Yahweh. Yeah, the requirements were minimal, but they were not negotiable. And well, by the year 586 BC, when our passage, Isaiah 43, picks up the story, Israel has already broken every promise they've made. Often compared to a philandering spouse, our people have proven themselves absolutely faithless. And so after years of warning and correction and consequences and myriads of second chances, at last the axe falls. And Yahweh deploys the covenant curse. The villages are burned. The walls of Jerusalem are toppled. The temple is torn apart stone by stone. Guys, there are bodies in the alleys. There is blood running in the street. There's nothing pretty about this picture. And everyone who managed to survive is dragged off 1,200 miles away as captives of an unknown conqueror. This trail of tears is fierce. And the worst part of it 
is that in this caravan of despair, every person standing in that line knew that what was happening to them was their own stupid fault. Now, bad stuff happens to everyone. Our world is full of bad stuff, but there is a whole extra level of hell when you know you brought it on yourself. We know this as the exile. The citizens of Israel are going to lose their place in society. They're going to lose their homes, their families, their careers, their identities. They're losing everything. You need to think about the flood of refugees in South Sudan. You need to think about the Nazi death marches in 44 and 45. You need to think about District 12. Yeah. This was the enactment of the covenant curse that had been detailed in Deuteronomy 28. It took Israel more than 500 years to get there. It took God a little bit longer to pull the trigger. But it was done, and Israel, our people, our heroes, are gone. And as far as they know, this story is over. This story is over. They were completely cognizant of the fact that they did not deserve mercy or restoration or yet another chance. If there was ever a people whose lives were captive to the iron bars of despair, this is them. When they looked at their current situation, stripped of their homes, their relationships, their careers, and tried to imagine a pathway forward, nothing. When they tried to stir up the agency to motivate themselves for something new, anything, numb. And no one had to tell them again that this hopeless situation was their own doing. It's into this reality that Isaiah speaks, and he offers Israel the impossible. Hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 43. But now thus says Yahweh, your creator, O Jacob, your designer, O Israel, don't fear. Don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called you by my name, and you are mine. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in exile at Judah at that point in time, I would not be expecting the author of the Mosaic Covenant to be announcing to the world that that one over there, that mess, that, that poor excuse for a human being, that one's mine. That would not be my expectation. When you cross through the waters, I'm going to cross right along with you. That would be the Red Sea. And the rivers, I won't let them overwhelm you. That would be the western arm of the Euphrates that the exiles are dragged across. When you go into the midst of the fire, you won't be burned. Now, notice when you go into the midst of the fire. You're, you're, you're not being... Like, you're not getting a get-out-of-jail-free card. When you go into the midst of the fire, you won't be burned. I'm not going to allow the flame to kindle upon you. Why? Because I am. Because I, Yahweh, am your God. The Holy One of Israel is your deliverer. You are precious in my eyes. You are honored, and I love you. Who is he talking to again? And verse 5, here it is. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you right here, right now. From the east, I'll bring your children. Remember who we're talking to. These are refugees. What happens to a refugee family? Well, think about the trains to Auschwitz. Think about the Uyghur people in China. Think about what's happening on our southern border. What happens to a refugee family? From the east, I'll bring your children. And for everyone in this room who has passed that sacred gate 
into parenthood, there is no greater promise. I will bring your children from the west. I will gather the scattered ones. I'll say to the north, release them to the south, let them go. Bring out my sons from the far reaches, my daughters from the edges of the earth. Each one who is called by my name, who I have created, bara, Genesis 1, for my glory, who I have fashioned, Yetzar, Genesis 2, even whom I've made. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, I, Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, I am the one who makes a pathway through the sea. I am the one who makes a highway through the mighty waters. What powerful words. But at this point in time, <laughs> you should be asking me, uh, this is all quite lovely, but uh, Dr. Richter, how, how, how in the world could these real people who had been dragged away as prisoners 70 years, two generations before, who had learned to wear the name tag failure, exile, outsider, adulterer, addict, loser, how could they ever find the courage to believe for a new future? How could they, in Snyder's words, find the agency to reach for something else? But here it is, verse 18. Do not remember the former things. Done. Don't consider the things of old. Do you see that I am doing a new thing? Now it springs up. Can't you see it? I will make what? I will make a road, a path, a highway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Quoting again from Isaiah 40, I will make a highway in the wilderness. I will lever the mountains. I will raise up the valleys. In other words, I'm going to throw open the gates of Babylon in order to bring my people home. And Yahweh is declaring that he, he has already imagined the pathway forward. They don't have to do it. And better than that, he's going to create the highway Forward, forward, Yahweh is not waiting on his people to scrape up enough agency to make this happen. Rather, the creator of the cosmos, the one who hurled the stars into place, the very one against whom Israel had sinned so profoundly, he has created hope where there was no hope to be found. Take that, Professor Snyder. <laughs> Yes, when an individual reaches the place where, quote, personal influence has lost all relevance, those extremely traumatic situations in which people are aware that what is so deeply desired is beyond reach, when neither their talents nor their resources can get them there, but God, as my prayer partners like to say, God literally makes a way. Now, I can assure you that our refugees in this oracle, they were scared. They were scared to leave what was familiar, what they knew, Babylon, for what they had only heard about, Jerusalem. They were intimidated by a very long and dangerous journey. Yes, they were more than a little tempted to despair that their past would forever define their future. I have to say that one again. They were more than a little tempted to despair that their past would forever define their futures. But here it is. In that moment of decision, based on the character of the God who had called them, oh, he got us through the Red Sea. Oh, he has passed us through the water safely. They wrapped themselves 
in a story that was bigger than they were, and they got up and they tried again. And these exiles found the agency to become the remnant that ushered in the age of the Christ. How did they do this? Well, um, here's where President Snow comes back in. Yeah, he was right. Fear is strong, but hope is stronger. So as I bring this all together for you this morning, um, what do we have here? Well, according to the hermeneutics gurus, and I am one of those, we have in this story of Israel a paradigm, a paradigm offered to teach us how the people of God, who had gotten themselves into a really bad place, got out of that really bad place, how a fractured rabble of refugees became a nation again, how a broken people found the strength, the hope, and the agency to believe for a new future. And folks, this word not only speaks to the people you were serve, I'm talking to you right now, right here. And as all things in the Bible, this paradigm is designed to teach us that hope is stronger than fear, that hope can be learned. And when we're in a place where there simply is no more hope, your God is in the business of creating it. Let me tell you one last story and I'll let you go. In 1957, there was this guy named Kurt P. Richter. I claim absolutely no association, for good reason. His research involved, quote, the phenomenon of sudden death in animals and man. In an attempt to produce a scenario of sudden death, this scientist decided to drop a cohort of Norwegian rats into enclosed test tubes and watch how long it took them to drown. Aren't you grateful for humane animal rights activists at this point in time? All right. So, um, to his dismay, he found that where his rats, some of his rats, only lasted a few minutes, some of his rats lasted as long as 81 hours. They were equally healthy, they were the same weight, the same size, leaving him a data sample that was just too random to finish his experiment. So he decided that he needed to somehow precondition his rats to stabilize his data pool. How did he do this? Well, he got a new cohort, because of course he had drowned his last cohort, and he submersed each of the rats into the test tubes for short periods of time. Each time he saw that a rat was beginning to struggle, he grabbed a net, scooped it out, and dumped it back in its cage. He rescued them. And then he did it again, and again, and again. The end result, all his rats, moved into the 60-plus-hour category, thereby stabilizing uh, his data and making Carl P. Richter a very happy man. Now, um, he actually learned absolutely nothing about sudden death in man and animals through this experience, but he learned something else. Science sometimes yields unexpected results. What that Richter learned is that hope can be learned. Hope can be learned. How? Well, for the rats, the fact that some unknown force rescued them from their plight over and over again when their own strength was failing taught them to believe that the next time they found themselves stranded in a test tube full of water, they would again be rescued by some unseen hand. So keep on swimming. Now, tragically for those rats, they were being educated by a force who cared absolutely nothing for their lives or their pain. 
Paul, on the other hand, says it this way. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And this hope, it can't disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Because while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Ah, the mystery of the gospel. God has died for man. And at that moment of our deepest despair, when we deserved our fate, Christ died for us. So in our case, unlike Kurt P. Richter, God has absolutely no intention of watching us drown. So on this Tuesday morning, following the greatest reversal in human history, and no, I am not talking about the Baylor Bears, <laughs> where do you find yourself? Perhaps juggling more balls than you can actually handle. Perhaps scared to death that you're going to drop one and this whole thing is going to blow up in your face. Bills that can't be paid. A spouse who's tired of waiting. A denomination that doesn't seem to see you. Perhaps an addiction that you haven't even named to yourself yet, let alone your soulmates. In that awkward liminal space between what you know you're called to be and what you actually are right now, all woefully compounded by the detailed inventory of all of your weaknesses and limitations, which, by the way, always seem bigger when you are exhausted and over-caffeinated. Just a little free advice. I want you to hear the words of your creator this morning. I've called you by my name. You're mine. I want you to hear the words that God spoke to me when I was in seminary stretched beyond my capacity, way over my head financially, pastoring, studying, and dealing with a denomination that couldn't see me. God knows exactly where you are. God knows exactly who you are. He knows the limitations of your gifts, and he knows the limitation of your energy. You know why? Because <laughs> he designed it. And your God is not going to push you one centimeter beyond what he knows you're capable of. Full stop. Your God has got the inside scoop on all the grade books and the job applications and the bank accounts and the bishops and the private places in your world. He knows everything that has to get done between here and next Monday. Heck, he knows everything that has to get done between now and graduation. And the news is, with all of your limitations, just like Israel... He's claimed you as his own. And here, perhaps, is the biggest surprise. Your God is not standing by with a clipboard, waiting to check off the box when you finally give up and go down. No, your God is standing on the highway into your future, a path that he is leveling for you, even as I speak. And he is saying, come on, we've got this. Wrap yourself in a story that is bigger than you are and get back on that highway. Let's do this thing.